With sports car racing news and analysis from around the globe, this is the Double Stint Podcast. Here's Ryan Marine and Dan Lloyd. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Double Stint Sports Car 365's Sports Car Racing Podcast in Indianapolis. I'm Ryan Marine, joined this week by Dan Lloyd, who is back in the UK and quarantining for the next two weeks after a trip over to Belgium for the total six hours of Spa. The WEC finally back up and running. Dan, uh, how exciting was it to be back at a racetrack? And now how dull is it to be stuck in your bedroom for the next two weeks? Uh, yeah, thank, yeah, thank you for reminding me, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be a long 14 days, but no, I think it was totally worth it. It was so good to um, to get back to the racetrack, and um, you know, credit credit to the WEC and and, and the FIA. The access that uh, journalists were able to have was um, was great, um, and and it was a uh, it was a very well managed event. Um, no spectators there, but. Uh, at the same time it, it's just a case of running these races and yeah and uh, it was there was a general positive atmosphere at the end of the weekend obviously a lot of unknowns going in but had a great time and uh yeah hearing those cars out on track again accelerating out of la source down to Rouge, perfect good way of putting it for sure i think a lot of sports car fans felt the same way we've been waiting to see the wec return to action i think We've had to wait the longest for the WEC. We were so close to seeing them at Sebring right when the real stoppage hit, and that has put their season in in a bit of a bind. But uh, good to see them back in action. Let's discuss what we saw over the weekend. Going into the race, I think there was some hope that perhaps the Toyota stranglehold in LMP1 might be broken, but the combination of mixed conditions and just the strength of that Toyota program ultimately rendered that discussion moot with Toyota coming home with a one, two finish. What did you make of the performance, especially given the fact that they entered the weekend with a massive, massive success handicap? Uh, they did. Yeah. Of course the success handicaps sort of been growing and growing over the course of the season. Um, what was interesting about this one was that it was the first time that uh, the most penalized LMP one car ended up winning the race. So the seven crew, Camus uh, Kobayashi, Mike Conway, and Jose Maria Lopez um, overturned that um, deficit, which was they they, did, they, they didn't have a, a massive disadvantage to the sister number eight car, but it was sort of uh, it, it was one of the bigger differences between them we've had this season. Um, the the reason for them overcoming it was sort of a mixture of um, a lack of competition from the non hybrids. Rebellion had a really really tough race in the changeable conditions, um, but at the same time the seven crew seemed to execute things better than the number eight. Um, the eight had some issues. It lost a bunch of time on a couple of occasions. Um, in fact, the seven had the same issue, um, which I think we'll talk about in a second. But um, yeah, in, in the end, it was it was fantastic uh, execution from the seven crew. They're obviously uh, really, really pushing for that Le Mans win, having come up short at the late stages last year. Um, and what better way to prepare for the biggest race of the year than to get a, a victory, their first victory in the traditional dress rehearsal at Spa. Yeah, no question about that. A little bit of momentum headed their way, and we can talk about maybe what we've learned from Spa heading into Le Mans a bit later. But let's discuss the issues that did crop up for the Toyotas, uh, an issue with in the cars entering safe mode, right? 
Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it, it was a it was a strange one, really. Um, interestingly, the Toyota's technical director Pascal Vassilon said that uh, it occurred on both cars. Um, it was just that the severity was worse on the eight, and and uh, also it happened on the eight first, uh, sort of late in the in the, in the opening hour, um, which meant that the the seven crew was sort of able to anticipate it a bit more. Um, it, it was a funny one that to- Toyota said that they they know how to um, rectify the issue on the fly. Um, hence why the cars were sort of able to um, get back to speed after a few seconds, no, no less than a minute lost. But nonetheless, it's a bit worrying if the car, when it's in these slow conditions, um, entering or exiting the pits, um, automatically enters this protective safe mode, to, which is designed to sort of um, preserve the, the drivetrain of the car. Um, and, and yeah, it, it, it was, a, it was a, an unusual occurrence, which we sort of haven't really, haven't really seen too much of before. And if it's something that happens um, over the course of many stints at Le Mans, you know, who, who knows what other issues there could be triggered there. So, um, no, Toyota seemed, um, they, they, they acknowledged that it was an issue that needs to be solved um, by Le Mans. Um, ultimately, the, the seven crew benefited um, from this partly. Um, although they were the, their lead was contracted by a couple of safety car periods in the end, though, um, yeah, it, it, it did come down to pace despite the success handicap. So, um, yeah, and more more info to come, I think, on that safe mode issue, especially if it crops up again at Le Mans, which, as we know, there is there's not going to be much testing before. Um, so, yeah, it, it is something that Toyota needs to work on, do a bit of homework on to ensure that it doesn't happen again. What do we make of the fact that a challenge from Rebellion never really materialized over the course of the race, especially considering the pace that we saw from Rebellion in practice and in qualifying? Does this come down to the Toyota handling the mixed conditions better, or or is there something more to it? Uh, Yeah, I I, I think you're about right there with Toyota being great in the conditions. I mean, having four-wheel drive, especially in the wet at the start, it it was the perfect perfect case for four-wheel drive because um, when the race got underway after 15 minutes or so under safety car, um, Norman Nato, who was on pole in the Rebellion, tried to get out of La Source, the first hairpin. And and he he looked like a GTE car. It, it was it was that sort of comparison. The two Toyotas absolutely shot past way before O Rouge, um, and 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 sped away for the rest of the race. Really, it, it it came down partly due to the Toyotas being better suited to the conditions, um, which negated the fact they were running their Le Mans downforce. Um, but at the same time, uh, Nato said after the race. Um, the, the rebellion has just really struggled. Um, they they have struggled in in the wet and grit before. Um, this was sort of this was one of the wettest races we've had for uh, for for quite a while. Um, so the, it probably hasn't been too apparent um, in previous editions. But um, yeah, it, 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 he said it was something to do with getting getting grip out, sort of tra- transferring um grip from the car into the tires onto the road and and it and whatever it was wasn't working and he said they that the team needs to wake up if they're going to have a wet lemon because they could really struggle there um and sort of you're talking falling into the clutches of the p2s perhaps if the weather conditions are really really bad Ooh, that is a, an ominous forecast indeed if we were to get some rain at lemon and as We've learned from Jason Statham, it always rains at Lamar, right? If uh, if you've watched the Truth in 24 <laughs> documentary, oh, yes. you know what I'm talking about. Uh, how about LMP2? We had United Autosports taking the win. Maybe not a huge surprise on the strength of the team and driver lineup, but also the fact that they effectively had a dress rehearsal one week before. 
Uh, yeah, and and they perfected the dress rehearsal, so there was sort of no reason why they shouldn't perfect the the, the race with an extra two hours bolted onto the end of it the following week. Um, yeah, six days later, after winning in the ELMS, um, the 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 same team and and two of the drivers, Phil Hansen and Felipe Albuquerque, joined by Paul DeResta, um, absolutely aced it. Yeah, they they've been so fantastic in the season. Um, and I think the, the the fact that they were winning before and after the long coronavirus. Uh, stoppage sort of just shows the quality of the team and the strides they've made with the Orica package, um, not just recently, but sort of throughout the last um, the last several months, sort of year or so. Um, and and it was yeah, it was it was a fantastic run for them. Um, it's worth noting as well, though, in LMP2 that we had a couple of uh, a couple of teams with bronze drivers in them on the podium. Um, some some great work and great improvement over the season from Fritz van Eerd and Alex Quanyu, Cool Racing, uh, Racing Team Netherlands and Cool Racing respectively. Um, those guys came in second and third. But yeah, United, just on top of it, they've been winning. They won the first two races of ELMS. Um, they've been winning in WEC and uh, extending the points lead heading into Le Mans. That's the one that they've got to feel confident about they've they've done well there with the Ligier before now they've got the much uh, more competitive Orica package you've got to label them as favorites heading in yeah no question about that jumping out of the prototype ranks to the GT classes GTE Pro the first win of the season for Michael Christensen and Kevin Estra they've finished second on four previous occasions a uh, big win for them, really starring there in the final uh, stint was, was Kevin Estra taking the lead in the final 30 minutes. And uh, I'll tell you, he's had a, a good run here at Spa in some long-distance races. He was a star in the wet in the 24 hours uh, going back to last year, and now a star in the dry there in the final 30 minutes taking the lead away from Aston Martin. Yeah, I, I think few people will have done more laps around Spa than Kevin Estra, and I think you know few people will have overtaken as many people around Spa as Kevin Estra. He's just an absolute master at the track. Um, yeah, him, him and Christensen, reigning uh, 24 hours of Spa winners, obviously. They're now the reigning six hours of Spa winners as well. Um, uh, and it was it was quite unusual, actually, you know, the, the length of time between their previous victory, because these guys are still the reigning champions. I know the seasons have been super long, um, but the, they they haven't won this season so far until uh, Saturday, and also their last victory came almost two years ago at Fuji in 2018. Um, so they were really waiting a long time, and it quite surprised me how how long it's been since they were on the top step. But yeah, no, the Porsche looked great, um, particularly in the dry. They said um, they switched to the tyres at the right time. Um, there was sort of a, a dry a, a dry-ish spell where a line opened up in the first half of the race. Then the rain came down again. And then in the second half of the race, we had a consistent bout of dry running. They got some good stints in um, and ultimately managed to beat Aston Martin, which has been so strong in all conditions, um, and, uh, and and Ferrari, which was mainly better in the wet. Um, so, yeah, Porsche uh, obviously going to be strong at Le Mans. They're all going to be strong at Le Mans. But, yeah, great a great result for Esther and Christensen. Um, they move up to second in the standings. It will take a lot to challenge Aston Martin's Nicky team and Marco Sorensen. But, um, yeah, who knows? All to play for. And in GTEM, a good weekend for the points leaders out of the AF Corsa stable. Yeah, for sure. No, uh, Nicholas Nielsen, Francois Perodo and Emmanuel Collard, we knew they'd be strong at the start of the season. They've been strong throughout the season um, and they extended their points lead with a great victory. Um, despite the Ferrari team uh, in GTE Pro struggling a bit, the, this AM crew 
um, managed to really lay down the pace uh, against the Porsche customers. Um, and and uh, in, in a similar vein to Esther and Christensen, that these guys are going to be um, ones to watch for Le Mans, I think. Um, so, and there was, there was great action up and down the field. I think some of the GTM teams that raced in the um, European Le Mans series the week before, they, they really benefited from that uh, four hours of racing, um, taking it into the WEC race, applying it, and uh, this 83 car, the AF Corsa car that won, was one of the ones that did the LMS. So a bit of a correlation there. Might be something for other teams to think about uh, next year if the two races run back to back. So, um, yeah, the, that one, uh, that team certainly did their homework. Last couple of topics here for this segment. The effects of the pandemic. You talked earlier about just the experience on the ground and, and the experience for the teams and, and the journalists and the series officials, everything is, is slightly different, as I'm sure you've experienced. But there were some more direct effects as well, with drivers testing positive uh, directly affecting who could participate, teams and drivers having to sit out. Yeah, I, I think it's always it's always sad and it's always a, a bit of a shock when you when you encounter stories like that with um, positive COVID-19 tests. I think, though, it's something that we've almost got to um, accept is is going to happen more in, in motorsport paddocks, just the, the nature of gatherings as they are. We, we can stay in bubbles all we want, but the, the fact is that they're sort of enclosed spaces and it's a perhaps more likely um, more likely environment in which something like that could happen. Um, as as you, uh, our listeners probably saw on, on the website, as uh, Gabriel Aubrey from Jackie Chan DC Racing um, missed the chance to be in the race because he received a positive COVID-19 test, um, the first of which he did himself. And then he was asked to do another test by the series to kind of validate it. Um, and as a result, some of the people that he'd met at the circuit um, were... Uh, he, he, he received he received news of his um, initial positive test while he was at the circuit after meeting people, and therefore these people had to go undergo testing and quarantine. Um, and this affected um, several teams uh, around the paddock. Um, so it it just sort of shows you how easily these sorts of things can affect teams. Um, and you've got to be super super careful, um, even with all of these measures in place, um, not to um, not to sort of increase the chances of risking a spread and it, it is very difficult but i felt like the um the protocols in place at spa were definitely um were definitely adequate and were working well um, masks mandatory on site we had temperature checks on the way in distancing um required and generally observed throughout the paddock um so it it was disappointing when um we learned of that news and uh, obviously we hope that um, Gary Aubrey and the other people who tested positive uh, are doing well and uh, we, we understand there were no symptoms. So um, that's great to hear. Um, but yeah, it, it's something that we've sort of got to learn to live with almost in the motorsport paddock, I think, um, and, and sort of be prepared to to react on the fly when things like that happen. So, um, no, I, I thought in general it was it was a very, very well um, managed weekend and uh, it was it was great to be able to be in the paddock and, and uh, talk to people at a distance, obviously. Um, and uh, yeah, so just just something that we're, we're going to have to, I think, adapt to over the uh, in, in the future, not just in the WEC, but in all competitions, in single seaters, in sports cars, everywhere. It's um, it's just the way things are now. And a little bit of a return to normalcy for the WEC, at least insofar as uh, returning to tra- to the track and returning to racing is concerned. And with that in mind, we'll close the segment with something we talk about leaving Spa every year. This has been traditionally the warm-up for the 24 Hours of Le Mans. 
What did we learn, if anything? I think it's very difficult, especially out of LMP1, to draw any conclusions because we know that the success handicap formula that's been in place all season, that does not carry over to Lamar. So is there anything that we can take away out of the LMP1 ranks from what we saw at Spa? And then perhaps there might be some conclusions to draw from the other classes, given the fact that they don't have that same success handicap system in place. Yeah, I think um, sort of drawing on what what we mentioned earlier about the the, the wet weather performance, it, you know, if it's wet at Le Mans, you can probably expect Toyota to run away with it. Um, if it's dry at Le Mans, Toyota's still the favourites, as you said, because the handicaps aren't in place. Um, I, I think it sort of all just comes down to the preparedness of the teams, you know, and how to react on the fly. Toyota did, I think, reacted pretty quickly to issues that were recurring throughout the race. Um, you know, we we don't know. We perhaps don't know the true severity of this protection mode um, engagement issue. But um, it, I, I suppose if they, you know, if they lost more time, it would have been a more severe thing in the final results. But um, no, they seem to manage it well. Um, yeah, I think it just comes down to that. And it's like um, uh, we have by Collars Racing, one of the uh, non-hybrid LMP1 teams joining us for the first time in over a year. Um, it, it was a great chance for them to get mileage. And I thought the team actually did really well. The car showed decent pace. It was quicker than the Rebellion and overtook it at one point. Um, and and it's just sort of Spa is all about gauging um, how prepared you are, um, how you deal with problems. It's a tough track. It's a tough race, and it's probably the closest simulation to Le Mans you can get. So, um, yeah, from that perspective, it was just a great chance for everyone to um, to to get ready for the big one. But you know, predicting things in this um, in this kind of series, especially in the GTE class, is almost impossible. But I think from the LMP1 perspective. Um, it's still looking like a fight between the Toyotas at the moment. The seven seems to have had the upper hand on the eight. All right. All of Dan's coverage from over the weekend at Spa can be found at sportscar365.com. A whole lot of coverage, reaction stories from the race, notebooks, as well as session reports. If you missed anything or just want to get caught up on what took place over the weekend, be sure to check that out. You can also find coverage from some other racing that took place in our weekly racing roundup so urge you to check that out as well let's uh, switch focus now from a recap to the news of the week here and we'll start with some news out of imsa a story posted to the website on monday morning dan john doonan president of imsa speaking about the future of gt racing in the weathertech championship something we've spent a lot of time discussing on the podcast whether it's you and me or John joining me to talk about this. Certainly a lot of ink has been spilt over this topic as well. And what did you make of John Doonan's comments about the direction that the series is looking to go with this, noting that the Porsche factory program in GTLM is due to conclude at the end of this year, leaving just two programs at best with Corvette and BMW. I think Corvette we feel pretty confident in. BMW, you never really know what to expect year to year. Meanwhile, on the other side of things, GT Daytona is still looking quite strong, even in the midst of a pandemic and a lot of discussions circulating around the future of GTE globally relative to GT3. What do you think? Where where might this be headed based on what John was saying? Uh, it, it's still hard to tell, and especially with, with what's been going on in the world. I had sort of similar comments on different topics from Gerard Navert the weekend in the WBC. Um, it, it, it's... Until you have a bit of um, general global stability, it's so hard to sort of predict and implement um, 
these kinds of big changes. But no, for sure, there's there's definitely um, a movement towards convergence. It's a topic that's been uh, that's been brought up ever increasingly over the last few months. Um, and and it, it's in my opinion, it's good that um, that John Doonan and the rest of the IMSA management team are, are looking at this and and uh, acknowledging that it's a thing that that could be necessary. Um, obviously, GTE is class that's under huge pressure at the moment really um for on the one end because you've got uh, the arrival of prototype formulas that might um take away some of the manufacturers taking part in gte it's no secret that how interested porsche is in lmdh ferrari as well um is really excited at the prospect of prototype racing um and on the other end you've got gt3 which is more than capable of filling the void that uh, it should GTE go away, and you've got several manufacturers that compete in both. So, um, yeah, I think I think it's good that um, discussions are, are certainly taking place. And John Doonan, uh, if you have a read of the article, he's very open about um, about sort of the the background uh, the background of the fact that they're they're talking about it. But um, yeah, as he says, that the market will sort of speak on this, and it's all about the interest, not just from manufacturers, but also from um, customer teams. Um, how do they want to be racing in the future? GT3 is a very expensive formula as it is. Do they want a way of controlling costs if it were to become sort of the top class? A lot of things going around. I don't know what you think, Ryan, perhaps on the North American perspective. Um, it, it's, it's certainly an interesting topic, though. Um, and how, how, do you, how do you see it going? I don't want to see a scenario like we saw towards the end of the GT1 era in ALMS where it was Corvette yeah. racing against itself. Uh, that I, I know the Corvette folks didn't particularly enjoy that. They they made the best of it without a doubt, but they want a challenge, and, and I think that would extend to to any manufacturer that's getting involved in sports sports car racing. So, when when you have three manufacturers at least, as we do this year in the WeatherTech Championship, I think you feel somewhat secure because if you lose one, you can still go on and have a, a reasonable championship to promote. However, if you're in a situation where you have two, I feel like that is a very perilous position to be in because you are just one manufacturer away, really just one catastrophic global event away, as we have learned, from finding yourself in a very untenable position. And like I've said, I'm I'm not certain about BMW's continued interest considering the fact they've already pulled the plug on their GTE program in the WEC. They always have a one-year rolling program, basically, in, in GTLM, where they're evaluating the program at the end of the year and trying to decide what they're going to do moving forward, and that, that doesn't give you a great deal of certainty. So I would like to see the series be proactive. I would like to see them just go ahead and make the move. We believe that Corvette already has some protections in place regarding how they built this car thinking that this might be coming down the pipeline at some point where they could convert their new C8R into GT3 form. In fact, we actually have a story about that up at sportscar365.com right now, talking to Ben Johnson, who is the Corvette Racing team manager. Now, it's not something they could do overnight, but with enough lead time, it is something that they could accomplish, and that definitely is a little bit of extra protection, as I said, against this potential possibility. And with that said, we already know BMW is a player in the GT3 market. If if Corvette can make that switch, 
it seems like that would be the way forward. You look at the popularity of GT3 globally, and I think that's great. Uh, it, it provides a, a good base for for the series. And, and I think you can follow the model that we've seen in GT World Challenge Europe, where you have GT3 cars across the board, but different classes based on driver experience. And you can break down a, a GT into two classes, if, if you would like, with a more factory, professional-style class if there is the interest from the manufacturers in doing so and then having a pro-am class as well with either a, a bronze driver mandate or or bronze and silver and, and some combination of pros whatever they choose to do I think that's very viable but the one question I have is can IMSA go it alone on this or do they feel that they need to be in lockstep with the WEC because again the WEC finds itself in a similar position and it, it seems to me if, if they're going to do this, it would be better if both of these major global championships did it in unison. What, what do you think? What are the odds that the two cooperate on any kind of GT convergence? And if a change is made, they do so in unison with one another. No, absolutely agree with you there, Ryan. You know, it, it, that's exactly it. If you look at the WEC, they're in a very similar position. It's three manufacturers um, and and if they go down to two, then that's that's when you've got to start questioning the, the short-term viability of the class. Um, when I was speaking to Gerard Neveu at the weekend, he's, he, he's as, as he has been for, for a while since we've had the three manufacturers involved, Porsche, Ferrari and Aston Martin, um, he said that that's a good number. We, we have good racing with three manufacturers. And, and to be honest, he's right. It's not a huge number of cars, but the racing's good. Um, if you go lower than that, as with the case B in IMSA, um, you're, you're not doing very well and, and it's not a particularly healthy class. So the fact that both sanctioning bodies on both sides of the Atlantic are facing similar um, potential issues um, sort of guides them in the direction of, um, of a shared approach to this. I think it would be unwise for one of them to go it alone. Um, and, and especially when GT3, as you say, is a global formula. I don't see any reason why one of them should implement some kind of convergence over the other. It has to be a global process, and especially with um, the ever-tightening technical regulations between LMH and LMDH, it's mm-hmm. just a no-brainer. If they're going to do something, they're going to do it together. It's it's uh, the relationship is it's it's only it's only become closer since LMDH LMH have have become closer themselves technically. So um, yeah, there's there's I, I I can only see one way of it going if if it does go. Um, in, a, in a future direction of convergence, and they've got to do it together to be stronger in the future as a whole. I do think maybe one of the benefits from the pandemic has been it's also forced them closer together because I think they see that a uh, high tide lifts all boats and, and both championships find themselves with a great deal of uncertainty at the moment, and, and I think there is a recognition there that they are stronger together. The last thing I will say on this topic is the, the quote from John Doonan about the market deciding the future for this. I think that is a telling comment, and it might maybe tip his hand a little bit here, because let's look at the market for GT racing right now. We have the manufacturers that we've talked about that are involved in GTE at the moment, Porsche and Aston Martin, BMW, Corvette, and I'm missing one. Who am I missing? Ferrari. Ferrari being the other. And that is it. There's no others waiting in the wings to join, right? Unless we completely are missing something and and there's something happening behind the scenes we have not heard about. 
it is those five, and that is it. Meanwhile, on the other side, in GT3, you have a dozen or so manufacturers already interested. I have reason to believe there are others that are kind of looking around and seeing what it, what it might look like. It's a growing platform, whereas GTE is shrinking seemingly by the day. And if you're letting the market dictate, I think the market is speaking quite clearly and has been now for the last three years or so. Yeah, for sure. No, that, that's that's exactly that's exactly what it is. Um, you know, GT three has been has been thriving for for several years now. It is it is an expensive formula, but with with GTE um, supposedly being um, similar in cost to what a prototype program would be in LMDH or, or um, in in the future top level prototype class, it it does seem as though it's something that doesn't have too many of the advantages that it used to have almost um and so, certainly though i think in the short term we'll be we'll be seeing gte continue but i i don't think this will be um the end of any discussions it's just the beginning um and i think you know it, I'm, I'm very excited to sort of see where it goes and to see um what sort of uh, information we can get out of it um as time goes on because uh, yeah it's certainly a topic that has proven to be interesting in the past and will continue to be fascinating as uh, it shapes sports car racing's future. I'm hopeful because there is a scenario in which you could see a global prototype platform with LMDH and a global GT platform, possibly GT3 or, or something based off of GT3. And I think that would be to sports car racing's benefit if that were to be the case. Let's move off of that topic and move on to our weekly discussion of schedule changes because, my goodness, we have some more. Uh, let's start with an interesting article. Our friends at Endurance Info had a conversation with Stefan Rattel and uh, uh, talking about a whole wide range of topics on the SRO scheduling front. We'll start with the total 24 hours of SPA still scheduled to go on, still up in the air, though, about whether or not to include fans. And I thought an interesting comment from Stefan in this uh, interview that you can read in English at sportscar365.com was the fact that they feel like they've got some time to make this decision. Stefan's saying early October they can wait that long to make a call about fans and they have the advantage of a major race on the schedule there at Spa beforehand with the Formula One Grand Prix scheduled to take place. And they can really let that be the barometer for them. I think that is to the SRO's benefit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, and you say early October's cutting it a bit fine, but to be honest, we've had so many short notice, late mm-hmm. decisions on things in recent times that that, you know, that's 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 a fair bit of leeway um, in, the, in the grand scheme of things. But no... Um, it's yeah it, it, the total 24 hours of spa is one of those races where you you sort of you need fans it really benefits from the fan experience which is obviously unlike quite a lot of sro's other events it's very much a customer competitor organ um oriented series but when you go to spa and and you will um, attest to this ryan even in the conditions that um, you face during the race <laughs> um like last time out it's 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 just such a brilliant fan event and it would be strange to imagine it without but um at the same time um you know retail is very pragmatic sro um extremely um aware of the situations going on that i don't think they'd be afraid to to run it without fans and certainly having been to spa last weekend for the wec um it 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 worked fine as as it has done in in a lot of you know formula one a lot of other series running without spectators um 
But yeah, no, it's, it, it would be interesting to see um, F1, them using F1 as a barometer. Similarly, the, to go back to WEC, they're also doing the same thing with, um, with Bahrain and the ELMS with Portugal, sort of running around the same time, being able to gauge how it works, how the event might work. Um, it, it's, it, it's sort of the way things are being done now, isn't it, in terms of organising events? But yeah, no, um, the, the key thing is that the 24 hours of Spa goes ahead. Um, fans would be a bonus. I know SRO is really pushing for it because it's a big one for them. Um, yeah, we'll have to wait and see. I mean, that, that could be a decision that's a month away at least still. The other benefit that they have is you look at all the other marquee motorsports events that have been run since the pandemic began uh, or, or will be run shortly. The Indianapolis 500, Le Mans, uh, the Nürburgring 24, I guess all of these still to come, but all of them already have come out and said there will be no fans. So it's not like they have to take the brunt of of the, the fan reaction to this. I think at this point people are kind of numb to it. They They almost expect it. And to, that's to their benefit as well when, when it comes to making what is undoubtedly a difficult decision for all the reasons that you mentioned. Stefan Rattel, in the same interview, also was asked about the Indianapolis 8-Hour, the new event on the uh, Intercontinental GT Challenge powered by Pirelli Calendar. And as of right now, the plan is for that event to continue. That is the good news. But, of course, with all the logistical issues that uh, a global pandemic presents, the amount of European involvement he had to admit is going to be quite limited. And, and now, in some respects, Dan, this this isn't such a bad thing. The whole premise of the championship from its inception was to use local teams to represent the manufacturers. I think we've gotten away from that some in recent years. So there is some hope there. But I, I must say the North American GT3 market, as we've seen in GT World Challenge America, Unfortunately, the grid's not super healthy there, and on the IMSA side, any teams that might be drafted in, they're going to be awfully busy right now running their own championships, and they've all been hard hit financially too. So I I still have some questions, even though Stefan is relatively optimistic in that conversation. He was also pragmatic in saying, look, if we don't have the cars, we we can't run an event. We can't run an eight-hour race with 10 cars or whatever. So I, I don't know exactly where the cutoff line is for him there, but uh, yeah, I, I have some questions about the viability of this moving forward, just given the fact that, that the North American market is a bit unique, and I'm not really sure where some of these teams and cars are going to be coming from. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and certainly on the European side as well, uh, those the, the tightening up, the bunching up of the schedule in the second half of the year includes you know drivers and teams with, back-to-back weekend commitments, not just in SRO competitions, but other series in Europe as well. And and just, just being able to to organize logistically, um, you know, travel over to, to, a, to a, uh, an IGTC race in, in North America might be uh, a significant challenge, I think, um, you know, even even without um, even without restrictions and other things related to the pandemic, but um, yeah, I, I'm 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 very I'm very hopeful that the India or I, I'm I'm really wanting the Indy Eight Hours to be a successful event and so, or certainly at least one where they have another bite of the cherry because um, it, I think it's an event with huge potential. Um, I like the idea of involving the um, of using the standard IGTC format really of um, involving the the, the global team, so to speak, and, and uh, including 
um, some of the national runners as well, and and sort of having a having a decent field and creating a big endurance event from it. Um, but yeah, I just think that the the current circumstances are are, are going to affect this one quite significantly, as you said. And and um, I, I don't want to say it's going to be scratched from the calendar or anything like that. It's that is going ahead as as far as we're aware. Um, but yeah, you've you've got to question um, what the car count will be, and I'm sure. And Rattel is closely monitoring that to um, sort of evaluate uh, how they approach that event. Obviously, um, IGTC still uh, planning to go to Kyle Army as well near the end of the year. Um, not sure how that one's going to work. That one's sort of a bit more out of the way, though, in the calendar compared to the, especially compared to the European um, uh, schedule. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how all of that goes. But, um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a tough one and it's it's certainly... It's uh, certainly a job that I don't envy trying to trying to sort out all of these events and um, work ways around it. But yeah, no, I'm uh, SRO continuing to work in the background on that one and continuing continuing to work as well with coming up with a viable schedule for their Asian Championship GT World Challenge Asia has really been hit hard by this, given all of the travel restrictions that are in place in various uh, Asian countries right now, this season has not even begun yet, and there are attempts being made once again to try and come up with a calendar that will work. The goal at the moment, according to Stefan, is a three-event schedule racing in November and December, but man, there are a lot of hurdles to clear because due to travel restrictions, racing in China, Japan, Malaysia, and Thailand all have effectively been ruled out, and you're really now grasping at straws trying to find a viable host for some of these events when you rule out those four countries as possible hosts. Uh, right now, it does sound like a couple of races uh, in South Korea. There's there's some circuits there that might be a possibility, but that, that to me, is is the most difficult schedule to work out right now. The, the Asian market in particular seems to have some extreme challenges attached to it, and I give them full credit for doing their best to find a way to make something happen. But man, they are really up against it. Yeah. So the the thing with GT World Challenge Asia is that while it is one of the three GT World Challenge regional series, it is the most international of these series because it covers huge distances, really. And and you know you're going over sea and air and 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 places that are really far spread out from each other. Um, uh, I suppose you need to get out an atlas to sort of really appreciate just how big it is um, geographically compared to some of the other um, uh, GT World Challenge Championships. So in America, of course, um, it's restricted just to just to America and around in Canada. And it's it's fairly easy to sort of go state to state, no borders, really, apart from the Canada round. Um, And then in Europe, you've got Schengen area. So it's easy to transport between um, countries in Europe generally. and and G2 or Challenge Asia has really suffered from from the different countries having different um, entry procedures. Also, um, particularly for Japan, the fact that um, uh, a lot of European drivers do compete in GT World Challenge Asia um, coming over, but they they really can't it, they really can't do that in Japan. There was a flat out ban. I think I think that's now reduced to quarantine. Um, but even so, restrictions there on getting over into Japan to to race. It's there are so many hurdles to overcome. And yeah, as you say, Brian. You sort of you, you sort of have to call on some of the motorsport aficionados to think of alternative tracks to go to. I mean, yeah, South Korea, but they've got Yongan, which um, used to host Formula One and GT World Challenge Asia has raced there as recently as last season. Um, Inji Speedium as well. I seem to remember the Asian Le Mans series going there a few years ago. But like, 
oof, you're, you're, you're digging deep when you're trying to think of other circuits to go to in that um, Asia region. So, um, yeah, it's it seems to be this is um, the, the, the kind of last direction to go in. I, I don't want to see the whole championship um, can, but certainly if more restrictions come in or if cases spike or if, you know, if tra- travel becomes harder, then... It, it's it's going to be really tough for the series and uh, yeah it'll be sad to see because it's a great championship and there's great racing um local drivers mixing it with um uh, european drivers coming in it's absolutely fantastic very underrated let's hope it can get going with some form of reduced schedule amen to that a couple other scheduling topics to close out on here uh the six-hour race at road atlanta for the imsa weathertech sports car championship that's the rescheduled round from watkins Glen. That was initially scheduled to take place on Sunday, September 6th. That's now Saturday, September the 5th. We believe that some local noise ordinances had something to do with that change of date. And keep in mind that weekend also includes racing from Michelin Pilot Challenge, Lamborghini Super Trofeo, and Porsche GT3 Cup Challenge USA. Uh, So busy weekend and one that fans, at the moment at least, can still attend. Tickets are on sale if you want to check that out and, and get out to a sports car race in person. Might be one of the few opportunities here in 2020. Additionally, we have a story that you did, Dan, about the WEC and its future calendars, eyeing a reduction from the traditional eight races down to six, all based around Le Mans, of course, and with a couple of different possibilities in place given the fluidity surrounding any kind of scheduling at this point it's really hard to commit to a whole lot when you just don't know what the realities on the ground are going to be regarding travel restrictions etc from even one week to the next as Gerard Neveau talked about in that story good uh, insight there if you want to check that out on the website Uh, also got official confirmation on something we talked about being likely on the show last week, we knew that the Watkins Glen event for SRO America had been canceled, although at the time there had not been a replacement round announced, but the rumors proved true. Circuit of the Americas will indeed host the replacement round on the same weekend. That'll be September 17th through 20th. And uh, also of note, the Creventic race at Barcelona, the 24 hours uh, a 24-hour race there was scrapped and has been replaced now by a 16-hour race that will be held at Hockenheim. That will be September 4th through the 6th. Again, we believe noise restrictions had a part to play in the rather unusual race distance, 16 hours. But uh, that's certainly better than nothing. And an interesting little piece of trivia. Evidently, this is going to be the longest race ever held at Hockenheim. So a little bit of history being made in that event. You can find more about all of these schedule changes. In fact, we have a dedicated schedule change page at sportscar365.com. Wanted to wrap up the show here before we preview uh, what's to come this weekend with a follow-up to a question we received on Twitter last week. It was from at AT Florio wondering about the fate of the Mazda TCR program, and John and I had to admit ignorance on that one and wouldn't you know it just a few days later the news did come out i think grassroots motorsports uh the magazine here in the states had the story first talking about the mazda's decision ultimately to scrap that program which is a real shame it was something that i think uh, was going to have a great deal of popularity and support but evidently the the covid uh, uh 19 impact has reached 
pretty far and, and had an effect on the future of that. So that program has been canceled as of about a few days ago, I guess, that news coming out officially from them. So wanted to follow up on that. Finally, though, we will look ahead to this weekend. We've got a GT-only race at VIR for the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. 20 entries on the entry list, which is pretty good when you consider we had 21 last year for this event. And given everything going on in the world, if you only drop one, I'd say that's a success. Of note from the BOP adjustments, uh, Corvette, as well as the Porsche and the GTLM class, they've both had an additional 20 kilograms of weight added to them, while the BMW has shedded 5 kilograms uh, looking ahead to the weekend. Meanwhile, in GTD, Lexus picks up 15 kilo- kilos, while Audi will be 20 kilos lighter. There have been some other minor tweaks as well, and you can find more information about that at sportscar365.com. Dan, you uh, will, I'm sure, be following from afar. I like these GT-only races, and I really like VIR. This is a, a race I look forward to every year. Yeah, absolutely, Ryan. Uh, you know, the, the, while the the DPI, while the prototype cars, DPIs and LMP2s aren't present, these GT races um, really sort of elevate the standing of the GT uh, Le Mans and GT Daytona categories and and give them centre stage. And I've always loved that. I love that IMSA um, creates space for these two classes. Uh, and and VI, what place, what better place to do it at VIR? Those sweeping. Um, sweeping corners, the countryside setting. It's just a fabulous place to go racing. And uh, yeah, in, in GT Le Mans, it's going to be a really interesting one with uh, uh, Corvette obviously took the victory at Road America and, and the C8 has been really, really strong um, as we expected it would be in its debut season. Um, Antonio Garcia and Jordan Taylor could could really steal a march on the on the championship in the mid-season if they get another victory or a podium result here. I mean, it, it's it's not as though too many of the other teams have been lacking, but they they've got a ten-point gap already, and you know that that could quite easily become something that is almost unattainable for the other guys. So um, as, as we approach sort of the mid the mid-season, it, it's a great chance to sort of see where people are heading into the championship run, what kind of chances there will be. And certainly Corvette will be wanting to um, stretch ahead and not let anyone else get close to them. Um, and uh, yeah, in GT Daytona, it's sort of, uh, uh, it, it's a little bit tighter, but Lexus has obviously been um, really, really uh, strong in the opening rounds of the season. And uh, you can probably expect them to be somewhere up there again um, this time. But um, I, as we always say with that class, it's pretty much impossible to decide going into the race who you want to um, pick out as your as your choice for the win because it's always it's always uh, so narrow in the in the timings there. So, um, no, I'll, I'll definitely be tuning in, Ryan. And, uh, yeah, VIR, always a favourite, a favourite of the drivers, a favourite of the fans, and, uh, yeah, certainly a favourite of those following um, uh, around the world as, as I'll be over in the UK. So, um, yeah, no, really looking forward to that one. Should be fun. Check out all the coverage throughout the weekend on the website. And uh, also, between now and then, if you have a question for us for our show next week, please be sure to leave that in the comment section for this week's show or use the hashtag AskDoubleStint on Twitter. And also, if you have some time to spare, we'd love a rating and a review on iTunes to help get the show out there and make sure folks can find it if they're looking for sports car racing podcasts that'll do it for us this week on double stint thanks for tuning in talk to you with our next edition of the show next week